Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Typically, we bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. And after having done 10 or 11 interviews, I probably realized this prior to doing that, but it became really, really clear with each of the people that I talked to that no matter what they did in the field of exercise and movement, whether they were coaches, coaching education, personal trainers, professors at colleges, or even physical therapists, at the base of what they did, there was a heavy emphasis on teaching, ways to relay how to do exercises or relay information or convince clients, patients, athletes, take this information and use it other than in the sessions that you see me with. So as I typically do when I run with my dogs, I thought about this and I realized that I knew somebody who could give a lot of really good information on teaching. And although it does not directly come from the exercise and movement field, it is teaching. I'm really excited to have a good friend of mine. I've probably known Bill for 20 plus years from my time at Auburn University. Today, my interview is with Dr. Bill Buskis. Bill is a re recently retired, distinguished and alumni professor at Auburn University and the bulk of his professional work focused on undergraduate instruction and working with faculty nationally and internationally to develop and refine their classroom teaching skills. He's also an active athlete. I became acquainted with him through my training at Auburn, but I think his experience, his knowledge, and his research on what makes a good teacher and the tips are really going to be helpful. And I think his path on how he progressed to become somebody like that is also really interesting too. So Bill, Took a while to get you set up, but I appreciate you taking time to talking to me and moving to live this morning. You bet, Ben. I'm really excited to be here and excited about this podcast. So thank you for asking me to join you. And as I mentioned, you are recently retired. You are a longtime psychology professor at Auburn. And I know 
both from reading your sheet and before that, that you started out in upstate New York and your original intention was to take baseball as far as you could go. Could you kind of talk about that path and how you ended up uh, from a small town in upstate New York? I know you ended up out west in Utah, then to Auburn, Alabama, I think with a shortstop in Colorado, and now finally back in the west in Salida, Colorado, where I think you really wanted to be quite a few years ago. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm glad to be back here, but it's been taking a long time to get here. And sometimes I describe my experience in Alabama as being a life sentence, and I got an early reprieve for good behavior. I was, um, I grew up wanting to be a baseball player. I sort of, uh, everything I did as a kid revolved around baseball and being in good condition to play baseball. So in the off season, I ran a lot. I lifted weights a lot. I read about baseball. I read about how to become a better pitcher. My whole life was just focused on, you know, maybe making it to the majors one day. And I was very fortunate to have been good enough to get a scholarship um, to college to play college ball. And I went out to BYU. And the reason why I chose BYU is because it was a long ways away from Jamestown, New York. And I had, a, as much as I loved growing up in Jamestown and uh, the great outdoor life there, uh, I had a really miserable family life and wanted to get away. Um, so I... Um, I decided that if I got a scholarship offer or offers, I would take the one that was farthest from home, and it turned out to be Provo, Utah. So I went out there, and I played ball, and just loved it. I just loved being in the mountains. I loved the hiking, loved being you know, at close proximity to national parks, those kinds of things. And I loved playing baseball there. But unfortunately, uh, in April of my freshman year, I was pitching in a really cold evening. Um, it was April. It was... Uh, it was about 27 degrees out, snowed on and off during the game, and I was doing really well that game. I had a no-hitter going through six innings. And um, one up pitching a one-hitter, um, but it just took a toll on my body, and I did something to my shoulder. And I just was not the same after that. So I had to um, – I didn't realize it until a year later, but I had to give up the game, which broke my heart. In fact, I couldn't even – I couldn't even stand to go to the games and watch my, my former teammates play. It was just uh, just too hard emotionally for me. Um, so I had to figure out what I was going to do. And for a couple of years, I, I just sort of uh, meandered through college, taking courses and not really knowing what I was going to be when I was going to grow up. I got depressed. I gained about 70 pounds. And one day I woke up and decided, oh, this is enough of this crap. I need to do something different with my life. And I got motivated in my studies, got motivated in my um, conditioning again, and uh Things took a positive step after that, and I wound up going to graduate school at BYU and finished up with a PhD and eventually um, um, going on and becoming very interested in, in a teaching career. And I think one of the things that really made me become very interested in Bill and probably why Bill and I became such good friends is I know even while you were teaching in psychology at Auburn University, you had a second job also, and I think this kind of goes to show people even in the movement and exercise field, you may have to wear multiple hats and you may do multiple things before you're able to finally settle in. So you did some work essentially full-time as a construction worker or as a builder while also a tenure-track professor. Isn't that correct? <laughs> that is correct. What, what actually prompted all that was the fact that uh, uh, my wife and I already had three children. We thought we were out of the baby business. And lo and behold... Um, we got pregnant again, and this time with twins. And that was quite a shock. Um, twins were going to be expensive, and, and my income at the time, we really couldn't afford um, 
a lot of things. So I decided to take on a, a, a second job, almost a second career. And I started out in the lawn maintenance business. I bought a lawn maintenance company. And for a couple of years, I, I mowed lawns, I trimmed trees, I did odd jobs, anything I could to get by. And then eventually I uh, wound up in the construction business with a close friend of mine where I um, helped him build houses. So uh, it, sometimes you just have to adapt to the situation and, and sacrifice your time to to be able to get ahead where you want to be as a, as a family. And um, that's one of the first things you learn as being a dad is that you do have to make those sacrifices sometimes to do things that you wouldn't otherwise aspire to do. So you had five kids, you had a wife, you had a tenure track job at Auburn University in the psychology department. You had essentially a second job. How active were you in the movement athletically, running, biking, any sort of movement other than than day-to-day life at that point in time? Boy, that's taking me back a long way. Um, I've always tried to say in some basic level of conditioning, except for that period after I got hurt playing baseball where I, I just let myself go so badly. Um, while I was um, involved with both the lawn business and construction, I always maintained a pretty pretty good running schedule. Uh, running is one thing you can do anytime, day or night. You don't need any specialized equipment other than a good pair of shoes. Um, you know, so if you need to get up at an extra half hour early in the morning to get a run in, you can do it. If you, if you uh, have time in the evening, you can fit a run in then. So I always try to, to maintain that level of fitness. I didn't run. I wasn't putting in a lot of mileage at the time, but I was getting enough that I was staying in pretty good conditioning. I was probably still, you know, running, um, Oh, four or five miles, three or four times a week, something like that. And I think one of the things that's especially good as a take-home message that I think I learned from Bill, although I didn't pick up on it until probably 15 years after he gave me that gift, is Bill is somebody who has, like most of us as athletes, had numerous injuries. And I still remember him tearing a meniscus in his knee while training for either a half Ironman or an Ironman distance race. He was able to bike. He was able to swim without pain. He could walk without too much pain, but running caused him pain. I remember him going to a race with me and knowing going into the race that, hey, you know, I'm not going to be able to run this, but I want to go and I want to participate. So I think for people who are listening to this, maybe if you're not a professional, but you're just a movement aficionado, being able to move, even if it's at a pace slower than you intend, is going to play dividends down the line so that rather than saying, well, I can't run and I can't run for the next three months because I don't have time or something's hurt, do some sort of movement. And whether you realize it or not, Bill, that's a a gift you gave to me and reminded me of, which I think probably when I was a young whippersnapper in grad school, I didn't really realize. (laughs) Well, you know, when you're young, you're you're many times injury-free, and so you don't realize what an injury is going to do to your mental state or your physical conditioning. And one thing I've learned over time is that fitness is perishable. And if you want to be fit, and by that I mean being able to sort of, you know, go out this afternoon on a whim and, you know, run six or seven miles or get on my bike and ride 30, 40 miles or get on my skis and go skiing, something like that, that you've got to have some basic level of fitness 100% of the time. And sometimes you've got to sort of adapt and improvise um, in terms of what it means to be fit. So if I can't, if I can't run, I can at least walk. Um, And that's really, really important is that you find something to do. That's an alternative. I think cross training is a really important concept for any kind of 
amateur athlete or professional athlete because you get so many benefits by doing other types of movement that will help you retain that basic level of fitness. Um, so I think it's a combination of being able to have that attitude that says nothing is going to stop me. And then when you do hit a wall, you're going to say to yourself, what is it I can do now? Is there something I can do in place of this? Because I can't do this at this point in time. So I think Ben, you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, in, it's a very, very critical that if you're interested in being fit, that you stay active. I think one of the things that everybody who is in the exercise and movement field, and I think probably any level of higher education, since although you weren't in the exercise and movement field, you were in the psychology field, there's always one more thing you need to do. I know one of my uh, committee members in graduate school said, you're always going to have a list of things to do. You just need to accept that you're never going to get them all done. But I know as you progress in a career that there's a tendency to spend less time on yourself and the biggest time investment on yourself is to move or to exercise on a regular basis. So with your career, and we'll get into more about how you got into teaching as your area of research in the second part of the interview. How did you with five kids, a wife, one, sometimes two jobs, prioritize or say, I'm always going to do some sort of activity, whether it's walking, running, uh, or something else? How did you balance that, for example, with your wife saying, hey, we need to do this, or your kids saying, come do this with me, dad, or your jobs? I know in academia, there's often committees that they say you would be perfect for it, often because they know you're the person who's either the junior faculty member or they know you won't say no because you're just a nice guy. <laughs> uh, boy, that's a big question. Very big question. Uh, let me answer it a couple ways. On the family side, I've been really blessed with a, a great family, a wife who understands my need to move, to be involved in athletic activities. And that's a real credit to her because she did not grow up with the kind of background that I grew up with in terms of uh, being athletically involved, you know, in some sort of activity uh, most days of the year. So she has always understood me and really sort of given me her permission, if you will, to take the time to spend at least a little bit of the day in exercise. And <clears throat> what I've learned is, is, even though I may have, let's say I... Um, Let's say I have planned for this afternoon a three-hour bike ride. Well, something comes up, and I can only make that bike ride an hour. Should I, should I just give up on the bike ride, or should I go for an hour? Well, the answer is obvious. You go for the hour. You get in what you can. I may change the intensity up a little bit, ratchet up a little bit, because it's going to be a shorter ride, but I still get it in. And so you've got to make that kind of activity a priority. And what I've done over my career um, within both my family and with my, my teaching and writing is to make sure that no matter what happens, I get in some amount of activity every day, even if it's a minimal amount. So what I do is uh, I get up an extra hour, two hours early on days where I need to fit in some exercise, and I, I make sure that I do that. So, you know, yesterday morning, for example, um, I knew it was going to be a very busy day with, with things I had to do later in the day. So I got up, I got in some strength training, I got in a, a short bike ride, and then I went about my day, got it done, and I felt very good about it. The days I feel worse about myself are the days I don't get any movement in at all. And that's, and that's just been the way I've been since the, my college days as a baseball player. And so I've really, really tried to make it a high priority. I, I've 
been very fortunate to have kids who are very active, who want to stay active. And one of the great things about being fit and having young kids is that when they want to do something, I don't have to worry about whether I can hike this mountain or kayak this river. I can simply say, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go right now. Let's get our stuff. Let's get on the road and we'll go to it. And that's a great feeling to have as a, as a person and as a father. I know it's very easy to get on the internet and to read blog posts and websites and things like that that give you, you know, tips for the new year to exercise or how to start your exercise program. And one of the reasons that I have moving to live is I realize that there's people out there who actually practice what they preach and have done it for many, many years. And I know that this is something you're not just saying and throwing out because you're getting interviewed. Uh, Bill was my regular riding partner for three days a week during four years of doctoral studies at Auburn University. And I would dare say that probably out of 50 week, 52 weeks out of the year, we probably rode together at least twice a week, at least 45 weeks out of the year for, I think, three years. And what Bill helped me with is making me recognize that there was always time because as a doctoral student or as a busy professional, you can always say, well, I don't have time because I've got a big day. Well, I know depending on the time of the year that there were times that Bill and I would meet for bike rides at 5 or 5.15 in the morning. And the thing that you very, very quickly learn is for the most part at 5 or 5.15 in the morning, you have two options of what you can be doing. You can either be sleeping. Well, three options. You could still be coming in from the night before. You could be sleeping or you could spend that time to exercise. And I know that very many, there were a number of times, there was at least one year where Bill and I would get together at 5.15 or 5.30 in the morning, and we would ride for an hour and a half, and Bill would have to be back by 7.30 to take his kids to school. So I think anybody who's listening to Moving to Live, if you don't move on a regular basis, it is possible, no matter how busy you are, it's all about what Bill said, making it a priority. And I think the other thing that he really hit on in this that's very important is the fact that he feels better when he moves. And it's kind of interesting. When I went and started my doctoral studies, a gentleman who was my mentor, Dr. Jeff Chandler, those of you who are NSCA members who are listening to this, you know Jeff. He's the editor-in-chief of the Strength and Conditioning Journal. Jeff told my advisor, you know, if Ben is in a bad mood, just send him out and tell him to go for a 20- or 30-minute run because when his training's going well, his mental (laughs) outlook is a lot better. And at the time, my first thought was, well, how could he say that? I'm really good. I have a good mood. And then I realized it's like, yeah, that's true. And as I've grown older, I've realized that each of us has a cutoff for mental health that we need to be active. And for me, it seems to be about 40 minutes, five or six days a week. If I don't get some sort of activity in for 40 minutes, I'm cranky and I don't think as well. Mm-hmm. That's it's- right. You know, I've actually been able to use uh, my running and my biking, just particularly when I'm, I'm going out solo. To, to think about issues in my career or problems I'm having at work in terms of uh, uh, designing research or writing a paper or coming up with ideas for a study, I found that a lot of times some of my best ideas came while I was moving. And uh, I, I remember the very first time it happened, I was on a track. I was doing um, some speed workouts. I was doing, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 440s. Um, and I just came up with this idea for a special issue for a journal on a particular topic and went home that night, very excited about it, wrote up the proposal, sent it to the editor. And the next day I heard back and said, great idea. Let's, let's go for it. And that's the, the great reserve that 
movement gives you. It gives you that time to free up your thoughts of other, about other things and focus on the things that are really important. One other thing that I want to touch on as far as movement and for somebody like you who has been, I know we're, we're talking over the internet so you can't uh, slug me or shoot me a dirty look, but you've been active in the movement field and moving for over 40 years. And that's a pretty consistent. Yes, I'm an old person. That's a pretty consistent uh, time frame to do this. With I know just as being your friend for quite a period of time, a number of injuries, and you alluded to the fact earlier. I mean, you've done a variety of activities with the movement. I know for a while you weren't able to run. How did you come up with the different activities that you said, you know, I want to move? And I think you're a lot like me, and that a lot of your movement activities have been solo versus or with one or two people versus a group class, as in somebody who goes to the gym to take an exercise class three or four days a week? I, you know, that's a really hard question to answer. I, I, you know, you just sort of, when you get injured, you know, your first reaction is, this is horrible. You know, what am I going to do now? Um, am I going to let this sideline me? And if you're, the answer to that question is, is that, no, it's not going to sideline me. I'm going to find something else. You, you begin thinking about what are my alternatives? What are, what are things I could add into my program to, uh, to make sure I stay active and fit? You know, the nice thing about cycling is that every injury I've ever had has always allowed me to continue to cycle. So I've always had been able to use that as my base, and that's always my go-to form of movement. Um, there's just something about being on the bike that's just almost magical to me. But, if, but that's not enough. I mean, the body to stay active requires other types of movements besides just spinning your legs around those little pedals. And if I can't run, um, okay, what's the next best alternative? Is there, is there a good, well, what about speed walking? So I'll give you a very good example. I, um, I've had last year, uh, 2016, I was training for a half Ironman and I pulled a calf muscle which meant my running was going to be curtailed yet again. I mean, this is a constant problem that I've had. And so I started thinking, okay, how can I finish this race? Okay, how can I finish it with some sort of pizzazz? So I started watching videos on speed walking, and I learned how to speed walk. And as awkward and as crazy as it looks, it was actually a lot of fun. And so all my training for the, I think, I'd say seven or eight weeks leading up to the race was all speed walking. And what was nice about speed walking is that it's not that kind of stress on the legs that running is. So I could get more days of speed walking in. So rather than running every other day, which is my habit, I was able to speed walk, you know, four or five days a week. And I got to the race, uh, had a good swim, had a really, really strong bike. And I made that transition off the bike onto the run course. And I thought, why don't I just try running? And I did, I ran, I completed the whole race, didn't stop once, didn't even walk through the aid stations because I had built that strength back up through, through walking. Now I didn't have a great time running, but I was running and I was really excited about that. It made me really, really happy. I was just like a kid in a candy store when I finished that race. Cause I was so glad I could run again. Um, so the, the idea is, is that you, you look for alternatives, um, but you have to be motivated. You have to be in love with what you're doing as uh, as somebody who wants to to stay active and stay moving, and if you don't have that motivation, then you don't have that desire to look around and find those alternative activities you have. I've um, 
now that I'm retired, I've, I've got more time for exercise. I try to uh, lengthen my exercise periods out every day. Um, I'm doing new things. I've, uh, I hadn't skied since I was a kid. I've taken up downhill skiing again and I'm having a blast with that. But I couldn't have done it if I wasn't fit to begin with. Uh, just pure and simple as that. So I'm just having a ball, staying active, finding new ways to stay active. And there's all sorts of new things that I want to try down the road. I think the interesting thing with Bill is even though he is not an exercise professional, he seems to have picked up on the fact that you can modify an exercise routine and generally continue to be active. Um, your story that you just mentioned about switching to speed walking and then suddenly at the race you were able to run is kind of the underlying theory of most endurance athletes have a tendency to do too much. And if you look at the injury rates for runners, they're astronomical. And I think it's probably because we really don't understand with training, there's a lot of force and there's a lot of musculoskeletal stress on the body. And I think what you've just described is an idea of the adage more is better probably isn't the correct adage. And what I used to joke around with, with uh, friends of mine who did triathlons with me is it's better to get to the starting line undertrained and healthy than well-trained and injured. And I think you just exemplified that. Yeah. Ben, I think if I've learned one thing over the years in, in all my involvement in, in running races and triathlons and things like that is that rest is incredibly important to the body and to the mind. And I think that the worst thing you can do as an athlete is to overtrain is to get to that starting line and be absolutely utterly exhausted or on the verge of a very serious injury. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I have built in rest days. There are days uh, I try to take one day a week where I do nothing but my stretching. Um, I normally st I stretch seven days a week. I lift every other day. I bike, I run, I walk, uh, those kinds of things. But I always try to find times for rest. And sometimes when I'm out running or biking, I'm not doing it as hard as I can. I, I have easy days that I really like. I'm, I may be a 40-mile day. But I may be pedaling at, uh, let's say, 15 miles an hour as opposed to 18 or 19 miles an hour. And I need those days just to recover. I'm just happy to be out there on the bike another day. So I don't have to go hard all the time. I think one of the things that Bill's saying, if you're listening to it, he's describing taking days off. But during those days off, he's still moving. And I think that's because even though he may have a workout plan or a workout program, the movement is really a part of his life. So even on the days off, he's still staying active so that he's better able to withstand those days when he does do, th do more active things. Right. Absolutely right. As somebody who's been active for quite a few years, and we'll get into the teaching aspect a little bit later, but you've been active for quite a few years. Um, I've known you for 20 some years. What have you noticed about the changes in your body as far as your training programs for say endurance sports, both running and biking? Have you noticed a difference in how much you're able to do, how much more recovery time it takes, significant slowing or increasing in speeds? That's a good question. That's something I think about all the time. I'm, um, I'm 64. I'll be 65 next August. And everybody kept telling me how hard it's going to be to be 60 years old and stay active. And this is going to happen to you. Or that's going to happen to you. You're going to lose your motivation. You're going to get injured more. And I have found uh, just the opposite. I have found that, um, uh, sure, I'm not, you know, knocking out, you know, five-minute, 30-second miles anymore. 
uh, you know, I'm not cycling at 23, 24 miles an hour over 100, 100, 112 miles. Um, but I'm still out there and I'm still able to maintain a, a, a respectable pace, at least for myself. And I think that's what's important is that as a, somebody who moves is it's not about pleasing somebody else. It's not about finishing first. It's doing better than it's about improving myself as an athlete and about, um, setting my standards and trying to meet those standards, regardless of what everybody else's standards are. And I have, I have found that as an, as an older person, I'm enjoying actually, and this was true before retirement, I'm enjoying being active more now than I ever have in my life. Maybe because I realize life is short. And so that every time I get a workout in, I can appreciate it more. Um, I realize that, um, you know, something could happen to me tomorrow. Um, I mean, you know, when you get into being in your 60s, you do realize that life is quite finite. You no longer have that personal fable, fable of being invincible. And so you begin to appreciate the opportunities you have to, to be active and to do things, um, things that you might consider extraordinary um, that, that, uh, that where you thought might have been out of reach. But you have that mindset now, you have the freedom, um, and you have the insight into your body and how it works. Um, to know how to do things better than you did before. And I think because I've been able to read the exercise and physiology literature, the sports literature, uh, running, cycling literature, those kinds of things, I've got a lot of insights on how to train now as an older person. And I think that's made a lot of difference in, um, in uh, warding off injuries and just staying fresh all the time. We're talking with Dr. Bill Buskus. Bill is a retired professor at Auburn University in the psychology department. He's given us some really interesting information on how somebody can maintain an active lifestyle through numerous decades, times of competition, times not of competition. One of the reasons I wanted to interview Bill for Moving to Live is he really is or really does meet the ethos of our podcast. Movement is part of what makes life complete. We'll have some show notes on Bill for this, and we will come back in two weeks because the area of expertise of Bill's teaching and research when he was at Auburn University is what makes a master teacher. And I suspect uh, he has some really valuable insights that he can apply to the exercise and movement fields, and I'm really excited for part two. Bill, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live with part one, and we're going to come back and talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks, man. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.